Number one, they are life challenging. Okay? Number two, the minor prophets are graphic. And I've got a quote from a friend of mine, Jason Bobo, which I have to quote because I don't know if I can ever say this. Um, he describes the minor prophets of postcards from the edge like this. Everything in the Minor Prophets is graphic and poetic. When I read them, I feel like I'm walking around a great museum of art. The prophets are not bowls of fruit or chubby, half-naked Europeans lounging in frou-frou gardens. The Museum of the Minor Prophets is this action-packed, thrill-a-minute, gory, painful, drama-filled, Christ-laden group of books that I can get lost in for hours. That's Jason Bobo's take on the Minor Prophets. Finally, when the going gets tough, and it may well get tough, I want you to remember that all of the Bible, all of the Bible is God's words for God's people, for us. Even Nahum, whose harsh tone, historical details, and bloody descriptions make it, this Minor Prophet, the least preached book in all of the Bible. That's what we're doing tonight. Get a little excited. (laughs) Rub your mental hands together. Make some friction. Um, Even Nahum, okay, even Nahum contains God's words for us. It's in the scripture for a reason. And our our delight tonight is to actually go ahead and plumb those depths. So thus far this semester, we've looked at a little recap. We've looked at the book of Amos. We've looked at the book of Jonah. We've looked at Hosea. And we've looked at Micah. And tonight we're looking at Nahum. Don't you just feel like accomplished after that list of names? I mean, first of all, it's just amazing sword drill to find those books in the Bible. Second of all, you know, we're, getting, we're making some progress here. Look, let me tell you a little bit about Nahum. Nahum historically lived and wrote in the mid-600s B.C., okay? Somewhere between 655 and 620 B.C. Roughly 50 years after Micah and 100 years after Jonah. To give you some historical context, remember, King David is 1,000 B.C. Ancient Israel split in two. They have a civil war, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. That happens about 930 B.C. Okay? And then Assyria, headquartered in Nineveh, which we're going to read about a little bit today, tonight, um, conquers the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And then in 701 B.C., Assyria attacks all of Jerusalem and Judea and sieges the, the city of J- J- Jerusalem Jerusalem, okay, in 701, but fails to destroy Jerusalem because Isaiah intervenes. Okay, if you're familiar at all with the prophets, it's another little beautiful gem. Okay, so basically what does that mean? That means that Nahum is writing this book about Assyria when Assyria feels too big to fail. Okay? When Assyria feels like it's so big and so powerful, it's the global superpower. And he's prophesying that it's going down. And so everyone around him thinks he's like building a boat in the middle of the desert. Like Noah. Okay? So he's, he is writing it right in the heart of the power of, of the global superpower. And just think about Assyria for a second. Assyria is a cruel and vicious empire. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So that's Nahum's historical context. But what is his book all about? Again, let's do a little recap. Amos' main theme was injustice. Jonah's was grace. Hosea's was redemption. Micah's was the kingdom of God. And so Nahum's main theme is this. God as warrior king. Okay? God as warrior king. Okay? 
That is, Nahum shows us a God who cares enough about us, cares enough about his people to rescue us and to punish our enemies. That's what the book's about. It's about God's rescue of his people from their enemies. Tonight we're going to look at a key passage in Nahum that will help explain um, how God is a warrior king and what that means. And then we're also going to look at a key passage that tells us how we are supposed to react to God as a warrior king. So turn to me in your Bibles if you haven't done that already. If you have one, to Nahum chapter 1. It's also in the blue sheet. That might be a little easier. Uh, it's on verses 1 through 8 is what we're going to look at. If you're thumbing through your Bible, find Psalms. Take a right. Okay, It's right after Micah and right before Habakkuk. I'm sure that helps. <laughs> okay. Um, so we're just moving that direction. So I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation. So Nahum, uh, just a very short three-chapter book. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture? <clears throat> we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. So the first eight verses or so of Nahum. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His ways in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds and the dust at his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries, and he'll pursue his enemies in the darkness. Friends, these are the words of God, and they are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, let's just go ahead and start this prayer this way. This is a very difficult passage, um, and maybe many of us are already thinking this is why it's the least preached book in the Bible. Um, but, Father, we know that you've got some truth here for us, and it's good for us to hear things that challenge us. Uh, challenge us, Father, if the Bible agreed with everything that we thought, it would be us, not the Bible. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to remember that as we take um, a posture of humility towards you and to your, to your revelation. I pray that you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and eyes to see the wonder of your love. Maybe it looks a little different than we think it's going to look, but I pray, Father, that you give us the faith to attend that. Father, we're desperate to get some good word here. Uh, we're tired, whether we know it or not. Um, we need you to show up, and we need you to become big. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> I'm guessing most of you had a middle school experience because, you know, in middle school, all of a sudden the lunchroom becomes the jungle and everyone either becomes a predator or prey pretty quickly. Okay? 
for me, the worst time of bullying came when I was in kindergarten. Okay, kindergarten. Kindergarten Sid, same size head. Yeah. On, a, on a pretzel stick. Okay. <laughs> Just keep that image. Oversized backpack, easy to topple over. Okay. Um, I grew up in the city, and I went to a private school in the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio. And so my school bus route was full of the tough kids at my school. Uh, how tough they were at this private school. You do the math. Okay. But I'll never forget one of these particular kids. Um, he was mean and sarcastic, and he was bigger than me. And his name was Matt. Okay, Matt. I think he was probably in middle school or high school, but it's hard to rely on my kindergarten memory. <laughs> Let's just suffice to say he felt big, okay? And really, what ended up happening is Matt started to bully me. And at first, I think it was a game. At first, uh, we kind of had some fun with it. Our school bus would drop us off, and I would run down the hill to my kindergarten classroom, and Matt would chase me, following close behind, only to grab my oversized backpack and throw me down the hill. Okay? Little heavy-headed Sid. Tumbling. Jack. Down. Okay. No Jill. Okay. So, and I would slide and roll all the way down the hill until I stopped just short of this rusty metal grate in the middle of a drainage ditch in front of my classroom. And I remember just freaking out every time. Um... At first, I think I laughed when Matt started chasing me and when he threw me down the hill. I think I laughed because I was rolling down the hill and it was kind of fun. But after a few times, this got extremely scary and humiliating. I'm not sure how long it lasted, weeks, months, again, kindergarten memory. But each time the school bus stopped and opened its doors, my heart began to race. Then I would push my way to the front of the line and I would sprint as fast as I could down the hill only to have Matt catch me, grab my backpack, and throw me down the hill. This happened every single morning for months. So every time I, hurled, I fell down the hill, I would tumble and tumble and tumble, and then I would come to that metal grate in the middle of the drainage ditch. And I would look down, but then I would look up, and oftentimes Matt was standing right over me. And he'd give this scowl, or he'd give this sick smile, and I knew that I couldn't tell anybody what was going on. And so every day this happened. Each day I came home and my mom got mad at me because my pants were ruined again. They were wet and they were muddy. And I didn't really know what to say. Each day as I ran down the hill and then finally fell down the hill, I looked desperately for my, I looked back to my school bus driver or I looked towards the kindergarten classroom door for someone to help me. Each day... I hoped someone would care enough about me to do something about Matt. But each day, every school morning, no one saw or did anything. Look, there's nothing scarier, nothing more depressing than feeling like no one really cares about you. We want someone to see the secret harms done to us so badly. We want someone to swoop in and do something to rescue us so much. This is exactly how Nineveh felt, or exactly how Judah and Jerusalem and Nahum felt with Assyria 
thousands of years ago. For over 130 years, they were bullied and terrorized by Assyrian threats. Grandfathers, fathers, sons, all lived in the looming shadow of Assyria, the evil empire. A hundred years before, Assyria and Nineveh had repented and turned from their wickedness under Jonah. But a hundred years ago, that had already passed. And generations later, Nineveh had returned to its evil ways and then some. It's like this. Imagine being Poland on the border of a Nazi Germany that's rising to power and doing more and more evil. But you know when they conquer you, they're going to do to everybody, whether you're a soldier or not, what they do to the Jews. Every single person will go in a concentration camp. Every single person will be tortured, gassed, starved to death, and burned alive. That's what it felt like to live next to Assyria. Just listen to the way an Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal, who reigned during the time of Nahum, listen to the way that he describes in his royal archives the way he treated his enemies. As for those common men who spoke derogatory things against my god Asher, that is, they insulted me and my god, and plotted against me, I tore out their tongues. And I humiliated them. By the way, that's a really nice way in the ancient world of saying either he raped them or he went to the bathroom on them. I smashed the rest of the people alive. Those are the innocent people, by the way. With figures of their protective deities. Then I cut up their flesh and I fed it to dogs, pigs, birds, vultures, and the fishes of the deep pools. So in the face of this evil, Nahum and ancient Israel wondered, does anyone care? They wondered if God saw what Assyria was doing and cared enough to rescue his people from Assyria. And so Nahum, whose name means compassion in Hebrew, Nahum is asking us if we'll get a little bit honest tonight about the ways that we're scared and we're hurt in this world. If we'll get a little honest tonight and start to identify with the people across this planet right now, crying out for someone to see and for someone to rescue them. Nahum asks, are we willing to see God's compassion and his divine judgment? Whether he's judging Nineveh or whether he's judging any other evil in this world. So let me put this in a sentence. Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, tell us, out of compassion for us, God is a warrior king. Out of compassion for us, God's a warrior king. And here's the question. Are we going to rejoice in God's rescuing love, or are we going to deny his love as judgmental? Are we going to rejoice in his rescuing love, or are we going to deny it as judgmental? Nahum throws down this challenge, uh, this metaphorical glove, to us in three descriptions of God's love. That's what this passage is about. It's about God's love. Okay? First, verses 1 through 3, we see the jealous justice of God's love. The jealous justice of God's love. Verses 3 through 6, the passionate power of God's love. And then verses 7 through 8, the moving mercy 
of God's love. Okay? Verses 1 through 3, the justice of God's love. Verses 3 through 6, the power of God's love. And verses 7 through 8, the mercy of God's love. Let's begin with verses 1 through 3, the jealous justice of God's love. All right, verse 2 may well be the most difficult description of God in the entire Bible for us. Let me read it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And although God through Nahum wants us to insert Nineveh and Assyria first every time that we read adversaries or enemies, it still doesn't help us that much with a verse like this, does it? In modern America, no one really wants to think of God this way. No one here in this room, whether Christian or non-Christian, feels totally comfortable with a jealous, avenging, and wrathful God. And there are good reasons for this, and there are bad reasons for this. And that's what we're going to unpack. So let's look at the good reasons for our distaste for jealousy, vengeance, and wrath. The good reasons come from our human experience. Okay? When your friend is jealous of your friendship, that means you feel controlled and manipulated. Okay? When people talk about taking vengeance on someone... That means they're going to get even by getting more nasty and more violent. And when people, when you feel the wrath of a family member, that usually looks like screaming, the silent treatment, or perhaps even hitting. But look at verse 4 with me. Nahum describes God as slow to anger and just. He will by no means clear the guilty. This verse reminds us that we should not place our human experience over God's character. This verse reminds us that he is jealous, he is wrathful, he is vengeful even, without sin. Without sin. This means his jealousy is not controlling or manipulative. It's a love that protects and serves his people. This means also that God's vengeance is not revenge. It's not about getting even. Instead, it sets up and restores justice to a situation. And finally, God's sinlessness means his wrath is not white-hot anger that comes out randomly at whoever gets near him when he's in a bad mood. God's wrath often looks like a passionate yet purposeful intervention in people's lives. So those are the good reasons. On the other hand, there are bad reasons that we are disgusted by verse 2. And they have something to do with this huge misunderstanding that we have culturally and personally about what love is and love isn't. We're talking about what love is and what love isn't for a second, okay? I love the way that Becky Pippert challenges us to view love. Listen to this quote. It's really helpful. Think how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions, like drugs, or relationships that are abusive? Do we respond 
Do we respond with a tolerance like we would towards a stranger? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. God's wrath is his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race whom he loves with his entire being. So you see already that the Bible is going to challenge us about our low view of sin for just a second, okay? In the words of Ralph Davis, sin is not just some impoliteness like bad breath, okay? Sin is a soul-ravaging cancer. So sin requires God to do some severe surgery, not just to drop some breath mints, okay? And so the Bible also challenges our poor view of jealousy. The Hebrew word for jealous is kano. Kano refers to this. This is a quotation from a commentary. The Lord's deep, indeed fiercely protective commitment to his people. The Lord's deep, indeed fiercely fiercely protective commitment to his people. In other words, jealousy is an all-out, all-pursuing love. Jealousy is an all-out, all-pursuing love. Are we tracking? You see, true love is a jealous love, not a permissive love. And this is going to be very hard for us to wrap our, our eyes around, our ears around. Since about the 1960s, we think that true love means giving someone absolute freedom. Free love, right? I mean, we release our house pet into the desert, and we go, what you love, you must set free. Go forth, whiskers. Go forth, Fluffy. And then all of a sudden, within a week, Fluffy and whispers, whiskers, whispers, whiskers are starving to death, or are coyote food, because they're pets who've been domesticated. Okay. Just think of it this way. Should I let my twin two-year-olds do whatever they want? Is this the best kind of love for my twin two-year-olds? Do you realize that if I let William and Carol do whatever they want, they would be dead within an hour? (laughs) They just would. Look, just last night, they put full milk bottles into new, brand new butterfly nets and swung them at each other's heads. (laughs) Just last night. (laughs) Is love... Is true love letting them knock each other out? Or is true love for their welfare intervening in their fun? Now, you can imagine where I'm going with this. If God is really God, and he's infinitely more wisdom and wise and knowledgeable than us, the space between God and us is infinitely bigger than the space between me and my two-year-olds. So that means maybe he needs to intervene in our fun for our welfare at least once in a while. Jealous love. So the second and finally, true love is not just jealous and wrathful. It's also avenging. It's full of justice. Look, I don't have time to get into how low our view of injustice is. 
There's two reasons. One, we are absolutely numb. Just numb. The stuff that happens to us, like, I told you a story about kindergarten. Until I wrote the sermon, I didn't even remember that. Okay? Didn't even remember that it happened. Why? Because it's so much easier not to think about it. The second reason is, we're in America. America has great laws and great justice. We think that there's a breakdown in the justice system when someone gets in the line at Albertsons and has 16 items. And it's the 15 items or less line. We're like, oh my gosh, what's going on, right? Injustice, injustice, okay? But imagine, imagine much of the world, much of the rest of the world, where people daily see bone-grinding poverty, and children, little children, are forced into prostitution. Children, little children, are forced into invisible guerrilla armies as child soldiers. All the time, every day, every moment. Millions upon millions of children. And if we saw this kind of poverty, these kind of situations on a daily basis, we would want a God that judged. We would want a God that punished the wicked. If we lived just a hundred miles away, south of the border, in Juarez, Mexico, instead of Las Cruces, New Mexico, we would rejoice over God's vengeance. Do you get that? That is why Miroslav Volf, a theologian from war-torn Croatia, familiar with stories of plunder, rape, and honor killings, Volf says this of God, which is brilliant. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. I'm going to say it again. If God were not angry at injustice and deception, if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. In other words, a God who only lets us do what we want to do and who doesn't punish anybody, that's a Western American God. And that's, a, that's no God at all. So in verses 1 through 3, we see the jealous justice, justice of God's love. Verses 3 through 6, we see the passionate power of God's love. Nahum shows us God's passionate power by describing the way that God rules over the entire natural world. Air, water, and earth. It's a beautiful, systematic presentation. The second half of verse 3 describes how God controls all the air. His love is a whirlwind and a storm. The dust of his feet are the clouds. In verse 4, God holds sway over all the water. He dries up all the seas and all the rivers and all the rain clouds so that lush pasture lands like Bashan and Carmel and the blooms of Lebanon, those things will wither. He's in that much control. And finally, in verses 5 through 6, we see God's rule over all the earth. God causes earthquakes and volcanic eruptions that quake, melt, and break pure rock. And the truthfulness of this claim, of Nahum's description of the way that God controls nature, is actually seen in the next section of our passage in verse 8. According to verse 8, God conquers his enemies with nature. He overwhelms the Assyrians with a flood. And while this description is, is used over and over and is overwhelming with a flood, is used a lot in the Bible over and over again for judgment, it's actually literally and historically relevant to how Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. Okay? 
This literally, truly happened. According to several other ancient historians, Nineveh fell to the Babylonians because there was a heavy rain, and the river surrounding Nineveh flooded, and it destroyed the city walls. And so the city walls had giant openings that the Babylonians ran into and killed everyone in Nineveh through. That's how Nineveh fell. And it was an act of God's control over nature. But let's not miss Nahum's bigger point in verses 7 through 8. God's love is full of moving mercy. Verse 7, verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 7 is offering God's mercy to those who take refuge in him. But why does God all of a sudden, in the middle of a passage about vengeance and jealousy and wrath, offer mercy? Who is this mercy addressed to? Is it addressed to Nineveh? Clearly not. The end of the book of of Nahum says that Nineveh will surely fall, and then 612 B.C., proves that point historically, as we just talked about. Do we realize that Nahum is a book of prophecy written to God's people? It's written to ancient Israel first, and then written to us, to everyone here gathered. And Nahum is asking and begging all of us to consider to seek the shelter of God. You see, while God's love has no harm and no evil, even when it's jealous, avenging, and wrathful, our love for God and our love for other people has plenty of harm and evil in it. How do we know even our love is sinful? How do we know we can be controlling and manipulative, violent and moody? Let me just give you a thought experiment for a second. Would any one of us volunteer to have our thoughts, desires, and feelings projected onto that screen right now? Anybody? No. Why is that? Because you don't want anyone else to know, no one else to know what you really think about them. You don't want anyone else to know what you really think about me. You don't really want anyone else to know what you think about God. Why is that? Why is it that how you feel before other people, imagine how you feel about before other people and how you don't want that projected on the screen. Now imagine what it feels like to be before God. Before the, li- the judge of the living and the dead, the divine warrior, when he comes again, how are you going to feel then? That's what this passage is asking. What is it like to stand naked before the throne of God and see him in all his majesty and glory? Well, our secret hatreds, our subtle rebellions, make us God's enemies and adversaries in that moment. They make us guilty. And he says in verse 4, he will by no means clear the guilty. And this is why later Nahum, chapter 2, verse 13, it says, I am against you. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. I mean, do you understand that he can't clear the guilty? Because after all, someone must absorb the cost of the harms against God and against the people that he's sworn to protect. Some, that, that cost has to go somewhere. That guilt has to go somewhere. And that's why verse 7 is so essential. That's why verse 7 is so important for all of us. Because it's not just a one-time, hit-it-and-quit-it relationship. 
It's an everyday, moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus Christ that we have to seek refuge every moment. Because we're sinning every moment. Verse 7 is saying, God doesn't have to be against you, and he doesn't have to be against me. We don't have to meet his perfect justice and get what we do morally deserve. Verse 7 is saying, if we seek refuge in Jesus Christ, we can get what we don't deserve. We can get the mercy that God can declare over us. I am for you. I'm for you because you're in Jesus Christ. And I'm for him. You see, only God can save us from God. Only God can save us from God. Only King Jesus can rescue us from God the Father's justice. Because he's the only person ever put on this planet who never meaned evil, who never meant harm. And this perfectly holy, perfectly just, and loving God-man died to take our guilty place. He died to take on our guilt and our guilty verdict, and in exchange he gives us his innocence and his innocent verdict and his record of his perfect love forevermore. Therefore, in the heat, in the pain, in the frustration of Nahum chapter 1 that we're all sort of feeling right now, Jesus' blood cries out to those who believe in its power. And do you know what it cries out? It cries out this. I am for you. I am for you. And no one and nothing can ever, ever be against you because I'm for you. You see, God's perfect justice, God the Father's perfect justice and God the Son's perfect mercy kissed on the cross of Jesus Christ. And there's a safe, warm, stronghold, a refuge, where these two persons of the Godhead meet in the Spirit. And that's eternal life, fellowship with God. So, after weeks and weeks, and winter turned into spring, Matt stopped finally terrorizing me with my kindergarten body. (laughs) My oversized backpack. To be honest, I'm not sure exactly what happened. I'm pretty sure that no teacher or bus driver ever saw what was going on and ever intervened. I think Matt just stopped riding the bus because he has sports practice. I'm pretty sure that he just stopped terrorizing me because he got bored. And like for a lot of things, there was no resolution, no justice served then and there. But I'll tell you something else. If I could go back there, if I could go back to that time of all that despair and that fear and that pain, and I could tell my little self something, you know what I would do? I wouldn't say a word. I'd simply go to that rusty metal grate, and right in front of it, where I lay almost every single time, I would just draw a cross, a vertical stripe and a horizontal stripe. The cross... Once and for all, where God painted a stronghold with his blood. The cross, that very historical place where God's vertical mercy ran smack dab into his horizontal justice. 
the cross that made the shape of a sword driven into stone. The very weapon that God, the once and future king, the once and future warrior king, draws to protect his children and to make a final end of violence forevermore. The hope of my kindergarten self, the hope of my present self, the hope of us us all in the face of numbness, in the face of other people's suffering, is the cross. Because it's a promise that divine warrior king will come again and he will love us with true love. A love that intervenes, a love that rescues, a love that protects and says, I am for you and nothing, no one, can separate you from my love. Would you pray with me? Father, um, very difficult passage. Um, a beautiful passage, though. I, I can't even imagine um, the incredible shock that it is to understand that you love us that way. That your love is that raw and that real. And that... And that our sin is that raw and that real. And yet, (laughs) the God of the universe became a man and died for us. If we believe he did. I I pray that those in this room who don't know that would believe that. Or would believe it for the first time. Or maybe the second time. Or maybe the millionth time. And I pray, Father, that um, you would be with us all. And you would help us to trust that you're a God of justice. And I got a judgment. And that justice and judgment are not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is indifference. We ask for this truth to sink into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.